We're going to be in Revelation chapters 4 and 5 this morning. So if you've got your Bible with you, get over to Revelation 4 and 5. Uh, I was thinking this past week about how the death of the Queen of England, however you feel about the monarchy or uh, the British or any of that, the death of the Queen of England really is a major historical event. The longest serving monarch from a monarchy that goes back a thousand years. Thousand years. Uh, of course, in the wake of her death, a lot of people are asking questions like Is this the beginning of the end for the British monarchy? Will it last forever or will it eventually fade away or uh, be voted away or however they do things in England? I don't actually know how that works. But if the monarchy were to disappear, it would not certainly be the first empire or monarchy or kingdom to fade from the earth or be overturned or to disappear. Uh, if you travel throughout the world, even today, you can see uh, physical reminders, monuments to empires and kingdoms that once were mighty and strong among the mightiest in the world that are now non-existent. I've been to the Forbidden City in Beijing, China, where the emperor of China reigned for some 500 years, and it's now a museum. I've been to the Palace of Versailles uh, outside Paris, France, one of the final palaces utilized by the monarchy of France before they were overthrown in the French Revolution. I read this week about a palace I was not familiar with, which actually happens to be the largest palace in the world. It's called the Palace of the Parliament. It's in Bucharest, Romania. It's also, also one of the newest palaces in the world. It was built uh, in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, it is three and a half million square feet uh, by surface area. I want to make sure I get my numbers right. Three and a half million square feet of floor space. Uh, I figured that out. That's more than 1,400 times the size of my house. Three and a half million square feet of space. It is also the heaviest building in the world, the Palace of the Parliament, weighing in at over nine billion pounds. There's more than six billion pounds of marble, one and a half billion pounds of bronze and steel, there's one chandelier that weighs more than 6,000 pounds. Now, it was constructed, like I said, in the, in the 80s and the 90s, uh, originally under the reign of Nicolae Ceausescu, who some of you will remember, he was the communist dictator of Romania for more than 30 years. Uh, in order to construct this palace to his glory, uh, he had to destroy uh, at least 20 churches in the area, it's said that he displaced somewhere around 50,000 families and destroyed 10,000 homes to build this monument to the glory of his reign and the glory of the Socialist Republic of Romania. But of course, the great irony is that before the palace was finished, Ceausescu was dead because his government was toppled in the Romanian Revolution of 1989. They continued to build the palace where it is now, uh, instead of being called the People's Palace, it's called the Palace of the Parliament. It's utilized by the democratic government of Romania. And, and when I read that this week, I thought, man, what, what a powerful testament. Here's a picture of it from the outside. What a powerful testament to the reality that whether we're talking about the British monarchy or whether we're talking about the communist government of Romania or the empire of China or the Roman empire or the United States of America, 
Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. Kings come in, kings go out. Emperors reign in terror, and emperors are deposed and executed. All throughout history, kings come, kings go. Nations come, nations go. Every kingdom will fall and disappear from the earth except one, the kingdom of God. When the book of Revelation was written, the apostle John was in exile on the Isle of Patmos, exiled by the Roman Empire because of his testimony of Jesus Christ. The emperor at the time, Domitian, one of the most powerful men in the world, had reinstituted the imperial cult where citizens of the Roman Empire were required to worship the emperor himself. If you did not do that, you could be exiled, you could be imprisoned, you could even be put to death. They were okay if you wanted to worship Jesus, as long as you also bowed your knee to the emperor. They were okay if you mixed your Jesus in with their emperor worship. But of course, John and the apostles and most of the early Christians were not willing to do that. So here is John in exile, exiled by the most powerful emperor in the world at the time, a kingdom that did not look like it would fall. And in that context, John receives a vision from the risen Jesus Christ to say, John, I wanna show you whose kingdom is really gonna last. John, I want to show you who's really in charge and how the God of the universe is going to bring everything in the universe to a perfect completion in fulfillment of his promises and in accordance with his plan. Every king, every empire, every nation, every person in heaven and on earth and under the earth will one day hit the dirt and bow in praise of Jesus Christ alone who is and who was and who is to come. As we move into Revelation 4, 5 then, we're moving into a new section of the book where as, as we've talked about uh, uh, the things that John saw in chapter one and then we're gonna move to chapters two and three. Last week we talked about the things that are and then from chapter four to the end of the book, God is gonna show John, here's how I'm gonna bring all of the universe to a perfect end in accordance with my power. And so before we start getting into some of the events of the end times, John is gonna be ushered into the throne room of God to see the one who is in charge of all the universe, to see the Father and the Son fully in control of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And the essence of Revelation four and five is simply gonna be this, that the Father and the Son are worthy Worthy, just like we sang, the Father and the Son are worthy of all power and all praise. There is no other king, there is no other president, there is no other head of state, there is no other nation ultimately that deserves power and praise apart from God himself who reigns on his throne. What we're gonna see is all power in the universe flows upward. All power in the universe flows upward to the one who is seated on his throne. Remember, we said a few weeks ago, the point of the book of Revelation, yes, it talks a lot about how things are going to play out and what is going to happen in the end times. But the primary point of the book of Revelation is who's in charge, that God is on his throne. 
And so before he starts talking about events, John will be ushered into the throne room of God in this vision to see that the Father is worthy and the Son is worthy. And you know what the response is going to be in Revelation 4 and 5 is, is worship. That there's praise and worship and submission to God. This is a passage that's going to call us to bow and worship before the one who made the universe and who rules the universe. So follow with me as we start Revelation chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 1. We're going to see, first of all, that the Father is worthy. Chapter 4, verse 1. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me. That's almost certainly the voice of Jesus, by the way, who he heard in chapter 1. Like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. I want you to notice that in chapter or in verse one, again, uh, Jesus says, I'm going to show you what must take place after these things. That calls to mind this threefold division of the book that I mentioned a moment ago and that we talked about in Revelation 1. 19, that Jesus said, John, I want you to write the things you have seen. That was chapter one, his vision of the risen Jesus. The things that are, that was chapters two and three. To the churches living in this age while we wait for the return of Jesus, now here we are in the things that must take place after these things. That's gonna be the rest of the book. And so John is now translated into heaven in this vision. He's probably not physically in heaven, but he is spiritually in heaven. He's seeing a vision of the throne room of God. That's where he is. Now, I want to read the rest of chapter 4 as we see what John sees. So follow with me, starting in verse 3. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. We saw that in chapter one. That's the presence of the Holy Spirit in God's throne room. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the center around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. Now, there's a lot going on in this passage. There's flying creatures and lights and sounds and songs and shouting and all of this stuff. There's a lot 
happening. But I want us to drill down on the most important thing that is happening here in Revelation 4. I want you to notice that everything in the the throne room of God is oriented with relationship to the throne. That's the most important part of this passage. 11 times in 11 verses, the throne is mentioned. God is on the throne. There are creatures around the throne. There are creatures before the throne. There's stuff coming from the throne. Lots of prepositions. All of them relate everything to the throne. This throne is not just the center of heaven. This throne is the center of the universe. And so the most important fact from Revelation 4 The key word is the throne of God. The one who is seated on the throne is where all worship flows, all power flows, all honor flows, and all authority and power flows out from the throne as well. Everything is oriented around the throne. I was thinking uh, this week uh, how in in a few weeks, my family, we plan to to go to the Texas State Fair. That's for my wife's birthday. She loves the State Fair, and so we try to go there as often as we can, can get there. Uh, and if you've ever been to the Texas State Fair, you probably uh, have recognized it's an easy place to get lost. It's an easy place to lose your kids, easy place to lose your spouse, to lose yourself. You can get lost at the State Fair very easily. I, as a kid, I got lost. I got separated from my family. Uh, it has become family lore because we were told to stand in one spot if we got separated and count to 100 just to see if our parents would return. And uh, they did find me. I was about eight or nine years old. And my mom said there were just little tears uh, trickling down my face as I went, 75, 76. It's an easy place to get lost. So when we go to the state fair, like a lot of people, you know what we say? We say, if we get separated in the crowds and the bustle noise, if we get separated, you know where you go. Some of you know where you go. You go to big techs. I heard somebody whisper it. Because big text can be seen from anywhere in the park. He's 52 feet tall. So everything in the park can be oriented in relation to big text. This building is in front of big text, behind big text, to the left or right. If you got to get to this parking lot, you orient it in relation to big text. Big text has stood there for generations, except for the brief period of time after he burned to a crisp and they had to rebuild him. But he's been there for a long time. Standing in that park, being a beacon to those who are around. Everything in the park orients around big text. I'm in front of, I'm behind, I'm, I'm around, I'm before big text. That's how the throne room of God works. Everybody looks at the throne. Everybody's positioned in relation to the throne. And the idea is whoever you are, even if you're the queen of England, even if you are the emperor of Rome, even if you are the ruler of a vast empire that seems like it will never end, guess what? In the final analysis, what matters most about you, your nation, your kingdom, is where do you stand in relation to the throne of God? Where do you stand in relation to the one who made the universe, who rules the universe, who is and who was and who is to come? And so near the throne, there are various creatures and beings. There are 24 other thrones where are seated 24 elders. John doesn't really describe them very much, so we aren't sure exactly who or what they are. Some people think that they are angels. Some people think that they are uh, risen human beings, that they are glorified people. 
I tend to, to believe that's probably more likely, that these are, these are risen human beings. And I think the reason there are 24 of them is that there are 12 that represent the 12 tribes of Israel, and there are 12 that represent the 12 apostles of the church. So that these 24 elders who are worshiping around the throne, they represent all of God's people throughout all of history, Israel and the church. And we'll see them, they're gonna fall down before the throne. And then there are these four living creatures, all with different faces. This is very similar to the visions of Isaiah and Ezekiel when they were transported to the throne room of God. Isaiah chapter six, Isaiah says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe, filling the temple. Seraphim, that's the burning ones is what that means, the bright ones, stood above him, each having, here we go, six wings. That should remind you of these creatures in Revelation chapter four. With two, he covered his face. Why? Because he cannot look on the holiness of God. <coughs> Excuse me. And with two, he covered his feet because he, he want his feet are going to be impure before the holiness of God. And with two, he flew around. And one called out to one another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth, the whole earth is full of his glory. Ezekiel sees something similar. When he's in the throne room of God, there were figures resembling four living beings. And this was their appearance. They had human form. Each of them had four faces and four wings. As for the form of their faces, each had the face of a man. All four had the face of a lion on the right and the face of a bull on the left, and all four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out above. Each had two touching another being and two covering their bodies. Now, I realize there are small differences in details here, probably because when you're trying to describe the throne room of God, you're seeing things from your particular perspective, right? And so any individual observer is trying to take in the throne room of God, and they're seeing different things at different times. But the similarities are significant enough that fundamentally we see Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, all in the throne room of God. And what they see are beings and creatures and people worshiping God. What's most important, though, is what they say. I want you to notice Revelation 4, again, verse 8. Day and night, they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. This is a repetitive worship song. Over and over and over again, they say it, then they go, hey, let's do that chorus again and again and again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, that is the one who reigns over the universe, who was and who is and who is to come. He was here before the Roman Empire. He's here today. He will exist long after the empire is a footnote in history. He was here before the United States of America. He's here today. He will exist long after the presidents and the Constitution and the nation of the United States is a footnote in history. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. That's all they do. That's their whole purpose. They fly around the throne of God and they proclaim his holiness. And when the living creatures then give glory and honor and thanks to the one on the throne, then the, the, 12, the 24 elders, they fall down on their faces and they start to worship. What you're gonna see in this passage is that worship begets 
worship. As one group starts to sing or shout or worship, another group will follow suit. It's like, oh yeah, they're shouting. This is like, we've got spirit, yes we do, right? We've got spirit, yes we do. We've got spirit, how about you? And then the other group goes, we've got spirit, more. And then this group responds, and so there's this this sort of cascade as they play off one another, and so the 24 elders fall down before the throne, and they say, worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will, they existed, and they were created. All worship, 24-7, 365 days a year, for 10,000s of 10,000s of years, extending into eternity past, moving into eternity future. All worship, praise, power, and honor flows upward to the throne. So again, the most important thing about you is where do you stand in relation to that throne? Are you the one who will fall down in worship? Or are you the one that will try to oppose this throne? Notice from the throne, there's lightning, there's thunder, peals of thunder and flashes of lightning, probably indicative of God's majesty and power when he gave the law on Mount Sinai. That's the last time we've seen lightning and thunder in connection to God's glory. There's a rainbow around the throne, probably reminding us of the rainbow that appeared after the flood to say in the midst of his judgment, God will be gracious. And so the question is, Will you bow before the throne? Will you worship the one who is and who was and who is to come? This is really important. Worship is not just something that we do to warm ourselves up for the sermon. Remember, there are creatures in the universe that that's all they do. That's all they do. Because worship orients our perspective to remind us who's on the throne. So I fall down before the one on the throne. Say, worthy, worthy is he who sits on the throne. So John sees this image. The Father is worthy. But then we're gonna move into chapter five and see that the Son is worthy. Worthy to reign, worthy to judge. Start with me in chapter five. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book, or probably better translated, a scroll, written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. So here John sees what's ultimately gonna be one of the most powerful sections of the book. He describes a scroll. You know what a scroll is, right? I I had this one in in my office. This obviously would have looked a little different from an ancient scroll, but somebody gave me this years ago. It's the Great Wall of China, this beautiful image of the Great Wall of China, right? So you can unroll it, you roll it back up. Uh, In the ancient world, this was all they really had in terms of writing. They didn't have books like we have uh, where the pages were kind of stacked up. Those didn't come along until maybe the third or fourth century. So they had scrolls, and he sees in the right hand of the Father, the Father is holding a scroll. 
Now, the scroll that God is holding is different from this one in another respect. It's written on both sides. It's written on the front. It's written on the back. So there's writing all over it, indicating the thoroughness and the fullness of God's plan. Right? In fact, I learned this week uh, there's a special name for a scroll that is written upon on both sides. It's called an epistograph. If you want to impress your friends this week, try to work that into a conversation. Maybe if you're talking about double-sided copies or something, refer to them as opistographic, and they will be impressed. I'd never heard that word before. It's a scroll written on the front and the back. It is sealed on the edge with seven wax seals. This is how they would close up a scroll in the ancient world, as they would seal it. And often the seal would bear the imprint or the insignia of, of whoever sent it. If it was a king or a sovereign, it would be a really special imprint and insignia to say, this comes from the king. So here is God the Father on his throne, and he's holding a scroll. And then an angel steps up and goes, who is worthy to take the scroll? and break the seals and open the book, and, and they look around, and there's nobody, nobody, right? This is like the, the biggest heavenly reality show you can imagine. So you think about something like American Idol. It's where we will scour the land for the greatest singers among us, and then somebody will wear that crown of the American Idol or the Amazing Race, who's the fastest, the smartest, the strongest, the most strategic, who can win the crown and win the million dollars. We're looking for the person who is worthy to claim that prize. Now, I want you to imagine that they got to the end of a season of American Idol, if you're a fan, and all of a sudden the judges go, you know, upon reflection, nobody wins. Y'all all stink, everybody go home. Credits roll. Have a great night, everyone. You'd feel bummed if you were a fan. Like, surely there's somebody. Surely there's somebody who can win. Surely there's somebody good enough. They go, nope, nobody's good enough. That's what happens in this moment. Nobody is worthy. This scroll kicks off the beginning of God's plan to fulfill his promises, to defeat his enemies, to vindicate his people and redeem them. That's what this scroll represents. And there's nobody in heaven or on earth or under the earth worthy to open it. And so John sees this scene. And John begins, he says, to weep greatly. He's just crying, these racking, heaving sobs. Now keep in mind, John is, is not an emotional invalid. John is not a weak man. He's been imprisoned for the name of Jesus, and he's stayed he stayed faithful. He's in exile and he stayed faithful. He's endured lots of trial and hardship. Doesn't seem like he's a guy who just gives up and, and weeps at the drop of a hat. But you have to understand the significance of this moment. If nobody can open the scroll, then God's enemies will not be judged and God's people will not be redeemed. And so John begins to weep. Verse four, then I began to weep greatly because no one, was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. So one of these elders walks up and goes, hey, stop weeping because the lion of Judah, the root of David, he overcame and so he's worthy to open the scroll. Now the elder is calling to mind 
some Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, beginning all the way back in Genesis chapter 49, talking of the tribe of Judah. This is Jacob's blessing to Judah. He says, you are a lion's cub, Judah. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches and lies down like a lion, like a lioness. Who will rouse him? The scepter, that is the right to rule over Israel, will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs. The nations will obey him. So Jacob had said, there is one coming from the tribe of Judah, a lion who will overcome and conquer the, the enemies of Israel, the enemies of God's people, and he will reign. That's a messianic prophecy. Who's the root of David? That's from Isaiah chapter 11. A shoot will grow out of Jesse's rootstock. A bud will sprout from his roots. The Lord's spirit will rest on him. A spirit that gives extraordinary wisdom. A spirit that provides the ability to execute plans. A spirit that produces absolute loyalty to the Lord. He will take delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by mere appearances or make decisions on the basis of hearsay. He will treat the poor fairly and make right decisions for the downtrodden of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and order the wicked to be executed. In other words, one is coming, a Messiah is coming from David's family who will reign over the earth, destroy God's enemies, care for the poor and the downhearted, and vindicate God's people. And so this elder says, John, stop weeping. The, the one who is the lion of Judah, the one who is the root of David, he is overcome. And so what you expect to see next is the lion of Judah walk up and grab that scroll and then kill all of his enemies. But I want you to see what happens next. This is one of the greatest plot twists in all of the Bible. Chapter six, or verse six, excuse me. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain. John expects to see a lion. He turns around and sees a lamb. The roaring lion is the lamb who was slain. How did Jesus overcome? How did he overcome all of our enemies? Death and Satan and sin and hell. At the cost of his own blood. His own death and then his resurrection were the means by which the lion conquered. So he sees a lamb standing. This is the big twist at the beginning of the story. A lot of the greatest stories, novels, books, movies, whatever, uh, they've got a twist toward the end, right? So, uh, if, you know, Charles Dickens' great expectation, oh, the benefactor was a convict all along. We knew it, or we didn't know it. We're surprised, right? Or the main character, he was dead the whole time. Or the Wizard of Oz, right? The great Wizard of Oz is the little man behind the curtain. There's a twist at the end of the story. Here we have a twist near the beginning of the story. The lion is a lamb. He conquered by dying for you and me. He walked through death, defeating Satan and hell and sin. And he rose again victorious. So now he's worthy. Verse 7, and he came and took the book, the scroll, out of the right hand of him who had sat 
on the throne. The lamb strides up, and he grabs the scroll. The only one worthy to initiate God's plans for the future. The only one worthy to judge the wicked and redeem his people is the lamb who was slain. That was the only way to accomplish the victory that we so desperately needed. Now what's great is when the lamb grabs that scroll, this kicks off another round of worship. And so it says, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp. That is, they have music that they can play on this harp. Harps were often used in worship in the temple. King David played one. And they have golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. I love this. So they're holding these bowls, which are the prayers of God's people. What do you think these prayers uh, are for? What's the content of these prayers in the context? The content of these prayers is, God, please, please save us. Save us from the wickedness of empires that threaten to kill us. Save us from the evil of a culture and a world that is hostile to you. God, when is the day coming when you will judge those who oppose you and redeem and vindicate your people? When is that day coming? And for thousands of years, the saints on their knees have been praying for this moment. And so they hold the prayers of the saints because fulfillment is about to come. And they sing a new song. Apparently on the spot, they just write one. I guess the elders and the creatures Uh, are songwriters as well as singers. And so they sing a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to break its seals. Why? For you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. You're worthy, Jesus, because you purchase people out from slavery to every evil empire on the planet. And you made them a new kingdom. They're no longer slaves. They're no longer citizens of countries that want to harm them, destroy them, or oppose you. They belong to a whole new kingdom where they will serve as priests in the temple of God, worshiping God, and facilitating the worship of God forever and ever and ever. So they sing this new song, Jesus, you're worthy, you're worthy. I don't know if they worked on it on their harps when this whole scroll thing was going on, but now they've got it, and they begin to sing it. And now watch what happens. That kicks off even more worship. Verse 11, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. So now the chorus joins in and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. A few times in this book, John sees so many people and angels that he's like one, two, three, I don't know. It's a lot. Myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Was that loud? Imagine thousands of us shouting like that. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him 
who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. So, so heaven is somewhat of a timeless place, right? So now John sees the culmination of all of history. Like Philippians 2 tells us, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess uh, in heaven and on earth and under the earth to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. John sees this moment. All of creation begins to sing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They give all blessing, honor, glory, and dominion forever and ever. And when they do that, now the four living creatures, they keep going, amen, amen, amen. This is proof. It's okay to say amen in church. They say it, thank you. They say it over and over. Amen, amen, amen. As all of this is happening, and then the elders fall down on their face and worship. You see this? There's shouting, there's singing, there's falling down, there's amens. There's worship upon worship upon worship for the lion who is the lamb, the one who overcame and bought us back. What John sees is that the one who is on the throne bought us back at the cost of his blood. Isaiah 53, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We got lost. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. We got lost. And Jesus, with his blood, showed us the way back to the throne, where all worship, where all praise, where all honor and power belong. All authority flows upward to the throne. And the lamb who was slain looks at his people and says, because of my blood, you have the right to be in this throne room, worshiping the living God. That's where we begin the after these things portion of the book. Robert Mount says in one brilliant stroke, John portrays the central theme of New Testament revelation. Victory through sacrifice. Victory through sacrifice. The lion is the lamb who opens the scroll. The father and the son are worthy of all power and all praise. If you know Jesus Christ, the day is coming where you'll worship with the elders and the creatures and all the saints around the throne. Worship reorients our perspective. It also diminishes the idols we are tempted to worship. If I'm tempted toward political idolatry and I spend all my time fretting and thinking about what's going to happen with the government of the United States or maybe even the crown of Britain, maybe you're a big fan of the crown, or maybe even world history, worship reorients your perspective. Remember, all authority flows upward. If you're tempted toward hoarding power, prestige, pleasure, or glory for yourself, 
Worship reorients your perspective. How can I claim any honor or authority for me when all honor and authority flows upward to the throne? And the Son of God, the Lamb, was slain to bring me life, to bring me into the throne room. And so this passage calls us to reorient our perspective and to worship the one who is worthy. There's a lot of different worship going on in this passage. They sing, they shout, they fall down. They fly, which we can't yet do. But I want you to notice the interplay of their, their, their voices and their hearts and their bodies. Worship is a full body activity if we do it right. We are bodily, we are spiritual, we are emotional, we are rational. And so we fall down, we raise our hands, we can shout out, we can sing, and we can worship the one who is worthy, who is, who was, and who is to come, who was here before all of time, before every empire, who will exist long after every empire. And we center ourselves around his throne forever and forever and forever. So that's what we're gonna do as we close this morning is we're just gonna worship the one who is on the throne and the lamb who was slain to bring us life. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. What a powerful passage. Forgive us for losing perspective when we become either too enamored of or too afraid of the powers and the kingdoms of this world, when we become too enamored of the things of this earth that will not last, recenter us around the throne of our Father, around the worship of your Son. We thank you for the death and the resurrection of Jesus who died and rose again so we can have eternal life and worship you around your throne. Day and night, never ceasing, forever and ever and ever. Amen.